0: My first sponsor was big on prayer. And I don't believe in God, but he was big on that. You know, he'd say things to me like, Do you trust God? No. Can you act like it? I'll try. And trust is like a muscle. The more I acted like someone who trusted in this, the stronger it became.
1: Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 36. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests and provide you with a front-row seat to the recovery journey. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I'm glad you are here and I hope you find what you are looking for. I want to remind everyone that Silvershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of some of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments or suggestions. My email address is Mike M I K E At Sobershares.com. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that I will play back on the next episode. You can access all of our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on Sobershares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute, and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep SoberShares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses and expand the reach of our show. I want to mention a few listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. Thank you, Barbara R. and Sammy G. I'd like to share some feedback with you now that we've received over the last week. The first one is from Apple Podcasts. The person's name is Anonymous. They said wonderful 12-step stories, five stars, wonderful and relatable shares of 12-step work. The way the host and guests interact just makes the time fly by. I will listen to all of them. Thank you, Anonymous. Our next feedback is from John. He writes, I love the podcast and resonates so much with the speakers. I am based in Nashville, Tennessee, and love visiting the Preston Group in Dallas when I'm there for work. Thank you so much for your service. I really get a ton of value from what you are doing. Thank you, John. Our next feedback is from Michael M via our Facebook group. He says, "Thank you very much for these episodes. Much appreciated and they help keep me in the middle." So, thank you to Michael M. I want to remind everybody that we do have a Facebook group page. I'd like you to go there, so just jump on Facebook and type in Sober Shares as to join. And I will admit you to the group, and then you can look at all the posts that we've got on there and make your own posts and get a little community going of sober, like-minded individuals. Now, I'd like to take a moment to read something from the Alcoholics Anonymous program that's commonly referred to as The Promises. This is from the big book. It says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scales we have gone, we can see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. And now I'd like to turn our attention to our guest, Bob D. from Las Vegas, Nevada. This talk was recorded in 2013. Take it away, Bob.
0: I'm Bob Darrell. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm sober today only through the grace of a God that I was afraid to believe in. That I have access and maintained in my life through a process outlined in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. An ability to remain reasonably sponsorable. And a persistent and consistent effort in our primary purpose helping other drunks. And consequently I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering substance since October 31st 1978. And that is the great miracle in my life. I'm a member of the Connect the Dots group of Alcoholics Anonymous. How many people are here in their first year of absolute abstinence? Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. You've probably been some places. You've probably been to church and therapy and treatment and Amway and (laughs) all kinds of stuff. We are weary by the time we get to Alcoholics Anonymous. And This is different than any place you've ever been. It's unlike any place you've ever been. First of all, it's the only organization on the planet that I know of where you come in a big shot, and if you're lucky, you work your way up to Servant. (laughs) Everywhere else, it's the other way around. Uh, The worse you are, the more we like you. We we really fight over the real sick ones. Uh, If you're new, we know stuff about you that you don't know, and you won't know it until we tell you. We know that you've been worrying about yourself a lot lately, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah, we know. We know. Your relationships with people haven't been going all that well, have they? Yeah. Yeah, you have a hard time with money, don't you? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. You wake up afraid sometimes, you're not sure what. I used to wake up with this feeling like, oh my God, something horrible's gonna happen, so I'd have to be on high alert all day long. <laughs> By the end of the day, I'd be just worn out. And we know you can't quit drinking, and we know you tried. If you're like me, you've tried a lot, and you give it your very best shot. When I was new, I heard a, I heard a speaker at, at our intergroup meeting say something. God, I almost fell off the chair. It was so amazing. He said, he was very serious, he says, I quit drinking seriously over 50 times. He said, every time I quit drinking, I got drunker than ever. Then he said, you know that quitting drinking was killing me. (laughs) I I almost fell out of my chair. I thought, oh my God, that's exactly right. I I I remember burning my life to the ground with everything in me, just saying to myself, man, I can't do this anymore. And making up my mind and, man, I'm never going to touch that stuff. And then something that I couldn't put my finger on would start happening to me. And it would start inching me into some sort of crazy insanity where the guy who knew that the worst thing I could ever do was to pick up a drink and was committed to that, to never picking up, is over time it would just seem to... I'd cook in my own juices until eventually it would seem like a good idea again. It was crazy. I don't know why I'm alcoholic. My, my parents weren't alcoholic. I came from pretty nice people. I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to find fault with them. And uh, <laughs> actually, and the truth is I had really good parents. I always knew they loved me. I always knew they, they put me, it was like they put me first But I'm funny with people that, I got this thing inside me, you can't love me enough. I'm the black hole of love. You know what I'm saying? I just... (laughs) Of course, I'm that way with everything. Everything is not... You ever ever been to a spot in your life where you just look around and go, this is just right. (laughs) I, I suspect might be part of this spiritual malady, this spiritual illness the book refers to, I don't know. But whatever that is, I think I had it before I ever picked up a drink because I was weird as a kid, as a little kid. And I couldn't have told you about it. I, don't, I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I didn't, feel, I didn't feel like other people looked. There was an awkwardness about me, an inability to connect with people the way I would so often observe people connected. I used to get feelings in, in, in dances and parties and in, great, in classrooms and gatherings where it was all of you, and then there's me. I couldn't figure out what this thing was between me and life itself. Wilson, in his story, uses a couple phrases when he talks about when he started drinking. One of them, he said he arrived on the other side of the barrier. He said, I was a part of life at last. Oh, man. I must have been like a freeze-dried alcoholic waiting for alcohol because I... I I'm full of fear as a kid. I don't fit. I'm sensitive, which I people in AA ruined that delusion. They said, sensitive? People are sensitive to what other people feel. You're only sensitive to yourself, which I thought was a bit rude. Um, (laughs) I was with a bunch of older kids. I wanted so desperately to fit with them. These kids had power. They were the tough kids. They were the troublemaking kids And, and where I lived, They were the kids that when they walked into a dance or down the hall, other kids moved out of the way. And when you're secretly pathetic and afraid and weak, oh my God, I want that. I don't want to be the guy that's afraid all the time and has to cover it up. I want to be the guy who makes people afraid because that looked like some kind of power to me. So I'm hanging around with these kids and I'm stealing, shoplifting and swearing and fighting. I'm smoking cigarettes. I'm doing everything. That they do, and, and if you're if you're like me, you can't do enough to feel like they look. I'm I'm still coming from behind. I still don't quite measure up, and I don't know why. And we pulled a burglary in the town I lived in, and broke into this house, and and I'm a young fancied wannabe gangster, you know, a little teenage punk is what I really was, and and they they walked right by the TV set and the stereo, and I'm like and they walked right to the liquor cabinet, but they knew something I didn't know. They knew that's where the power was. I didn't know that because I'd never drank alcohol. I didn't even know that alcohol got you drunk. I'd never seen my parents drunk. I, I, I didn't even get it. If you're a pretend guy, a guy who has to pretend he fits and he pretends he's okay and he pretends you're not afraid, if you're a pretend guy, if you're a phony guy like I am, you got to watch people and watch what they do and then try to emulate and, and do what they're doing to fit. And so I've, I've, I have did that growing up all the time. And, and I'm watching these kids, and they're passing around this, this quart bottle of Seagram 7. And, and I noticed that if you took a big hit, the kids that took a big hit off of it, got a lot of positive attention from the other kids. So by the time the bottle comes around to me, like, I'm in. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to take a big hit off this. I'm just glad it wasn't cat urine because I'm in. I'm telling you. <laughs> and they didn't. And nobody said nothing about the burning. Oh, my God. I thought my whole insides were being torn out. And somehow I kept, I threw up later, but somehow I kept that first one down. I don't know how I did it. And when the burning stopped, something started happening to me that would change the course of my life. And really, what happened to me is that I started to feel like they looked. I, I didn't have to pretend I was okay anymore. I felt, I felt better than okay. I felt magnificent. I could come out and play. I could talk to these guys. I could laugh. I could say things that would make them I could be funny. I'm not funny, sober. I'm a mope. But you get me half lit up, I'm funny. I crack me up, I'm funny. <laughs> and over the next several years, it was like, it, like I tapped into some secret in the universe. It was amazing. I, I could go to a dance and I could drink some 151 rum and Coke in the parking lot and I could go into that dance and just ask the, the most popular girl there to dance. And most of the time, I would do it with such suave fair that they would say yes. And I can't dance. But you get me half drunk. Oh, my God, the rhythm of the universe flows through me. I mean, I can dance. I can shoot pool. Sometimes I'd, I'd get about half lit up. I'd be drinking that cheap wine, and I'd just get in that zone, man, that zone where you can't miss. It's just, wow. I could get deep and philosophical at times. I remember, I remember one night drinking wine, smoking a little reefer with some guys. and We're talking about it. Heavy stuff. I mean, cracking the secrets of the universe. I remember saying to these guys, this is what Buddha saw. <laughs> you know, you, you can just see the big picture. You know, you, All of a sudden, everything makes sense. It's almost like a spiritual awakening where every, it's like everything in the universe lines up, and it all makes sense. And then you know what happens. Same thing that happens to you. I sober up, and I'm back to being me again. I don't like that much, now, I could never tell anybody that, but it you know, looking back in hindsight, it's no wonder that it seemed like I just lived to get for that, for that magical effect. Well, the problem is, I got alcoholism. I don't know I got alcoholism, but I've had alcoholism since the first time I ever drank when I was almost, not even 13 years old, and I felt the effects of alcohol for the first time, it touched something inside me and lit something up inside me that just said, oh yeah, oh yes. And I just knew I'm going to do that a lot. And I'm going to do it every chance I can get because I loved it. But I got this... Allergy to alcohol. Now I don't know I got it. I don't think I'm alcoholic. I, I just like to, I just like to party with my buddies. That's all. But every time I go out to drink, something happens to me that doesn't happen to everybody. Is that when the effect of the alcohol starts hitting me and I start to feel that feeling, I break out in this irresistible yearning for more. I have never ever got to a place where that I didn't have that. I can't remember one instance in all the years I drank where I've been drinking for an hour or two with my buddies and had somebody say, hey, Bob, would you like another one? I know not what it is to sit there and think to yourself honestly, no, this is just right. I'm I'm good. If I'm with somebody and the heat's on, maybe. But I couldn't even do that very much. And if you uh, if you're like that, and you have that allergic reaction to alcohol that our book talks about, then guys like me always seem to go too far. I don't mean to, but when you can't get enough, you you end up with too much. It just it just seems to be the nature of the beast. And I and I don't I'm in a grip of a progressive illness, and I don't know that either. I I don't know as the years go on, it's. Uh, the problems get a little worse. The price I'm paying to jumpstart this party keeps getting ratcheted up and as the price I'm paying for this is ratcheted up the effect seems to be bleeding out and it's becoming more and more elusive and I don't understand what's happening to me and I entered into that that phase of alcoholism where it's frightening, it's baffling. Uh, where I am doing the thing that, that was amazing and it's, it's not really amazing a lot anymore. I get little, little windows where it's, it's kind of fun and then it becomes really bad quick. And, and then at the very end of my drinking, I couldn't get that. I, I, remember, uh, uh, I remember towards the end, I was so pathetic. I, I would drink and, and cry. I would drink. The minute I'd I'd get out of a halfway house, the minute I'd start drinking, I stopped bathing. And I'm not against hygiene. It's just I don't I don't care. I mean, I don't. You know, when I start drinking, I don't really care anymore. I became the guy who just seeks oblivion, and it it became a desperate drinking because I can't I can't jumpstart the party. All I got left is oblivion. Because by the time I, you get to that phase, the price I've paid to keep this party going is so high that I hate myself. It's, you know, when you think of it objectively, if someone else would have done to my loved ones and family what I did to them, I'd kill them. So is it any wonder that by the time guys like me get to AA, I, I kind of loathe myself. And so I seek oblivion because every time I'm conscious, I'm in the presence of, the I guess, the guy I hate the most, me. But I don't know that. I don't know I'm in the grip of this progressive illness. I, I As the funds running out of the drinking, these problems are incurring, I started to Oh God! I started to have all kinds of some bizarre things. I was a blackout drinker. I mean, not not once in a while. I, when you when you're an oblivion drinker, I became like a, a almost probably daily blackout drinker. Any blackout drinkers in here? Oh, uh, it's hard going through life when other people know more about you than you do, isn't it? <laughs> I never did anything good in a blackout. Nobody ever came up to me the next day and said, Oh, Bob, you were so helpful last night. (laughs) You peed in our kitchen. (laughs) You threw up in our living room. You hit on my wife. You stole my stash. You sideswiped my car. You passed out my front yard. The worst one. This guy cornered me. Man, I was... And i come to, I'd have those shakes, those tremors. I'm a young kid, my early 20s, I got those tremors like an old burnout wino. And I'm on my way to the, the state liquor store, which, which doesn't open in Pennsylvania till 10 a.m. I'll tell you, there should be a law against that. <laughs> That's real alcohol abuse in my book. But I'd be on there, I'd need it, you know, I'd get down there, 9.30. Pace back and forth in front of those windows. Try to look as pathetic as you can, hoping they're going to open early. They never open early. And I'm on my way to this liquor store to get a bottle of wine, to get some of that medicine, to try to stop this sickness in me. This guy cuts into me and he says, You know you told everybody last night you beat Bruce Lee in a karate match? (laughs) You see it and hear enough stuff like that it's it fuels the fire doesn't it now because i do i do these things i hate myself and i'm ashamed of when i'm drinking so now i'm drinking over my drinking which makes for more bizarre behavior and more self-loathing and more shame and more it's like it's a perpetual motion machine and i i'm not dumb I, i i i start getting it man i it's funny you know when the when the when it turns on you Bill Wilson used I love that analogy uses the boomerang but when it turns on you and you're like me you don't want to believe it turned on you right cuz everything in me fantasizes that I'm going to get back to the way it was when I was 18 20 20 years old again and the reason is is because there's something else seems to be wrong with me and I I don't understand what it is. And I keep going back to drinking, hoping, hoping I'm gonna get some ease and comfort. I'm gonna get some relief. I'm gonna feel better. And it's because every time I get sober, I get sober with a conviction. Because I'm not stupid, I get it. I'm in my 20s and I'm, I'm a homeless guy. I'm in and out of halfway houses and missions. and I'm sleeping on guys' couches from time to time. There's guys I went to high school with that have college degrees and own homes and businesses. And I'm smarter than all of them. And my life's crap. And I get it. I get that this drinking thing is killing me. I am not stupid. I get it. And So I, again, I swear to myself. I went into treatment centers. I went a lot of treatment centers. I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in one of them. And I, I think my first couple introductions to AA, I don't think I really, I think this was just a foxhole for me. I'm just, I just want to heal up a little bit so I can go back and do my thing. And then there came a time when all the fun had bled out and I started to know it and I started to get more desperate and I really, really wanted to be sober. So I'd come and I'd listen to you and I'd watch you. And I observed something that was, that was not good news. You guys were sober and you were happy, but for God's sakes, whatever's wrong with you is not the same thing that's wrong with me because I'm sober now, several months in this place. Abstinence feels like I'm doing time. I'm a depressive. I don't mean to be depressive, but I just get me right on me, like that creature in that movie Alien that attaches itself to your face. <laughs> How you doing, Bob? Oh, jeez. <laughs> it feels like somebody stepped on the oxygen hose to my soul. I'm lonely. I cook and stew in these emotions. I I don't fit anywhere sober. I don't I don't know why. It just wears on me. And I I look around Alcoholics Anonymous, and you guys quit drinking, and you're wonderful. I mean, I resent most of you for it, but I mean, you're happy. You got, you know. I remember sitting in a halfway house, and all these guys from AA that would come in there with five to ten years. Some of them a little more sober. It seemed like. My life is the worst it's ever been, and you want to come in and just tell me how wonderful yours is. I remember thinking, I've died and gone to hell. This is like, isn't it bad enough that my life is ruined? You have to rub my face in how wonderful you're doing? I just, and I didn't know that you guys had done some things. See, I never heard that. I, it seemed to me like you just quit drinking. And that was the, and that solved it. I was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous in Pennsylvania, and they got these strange meetings where twenty-minute drunckalogue, and then people will comment on the speaker and tell you how wonderful his life is. They never told you how he went from A to B. They never talked about that. I, I never heard it. If they did, I never heard it. And the guy had to have done what we all do. I just didn't get it. And when you think about it, maybe people did talk about that maybe people talked about the steps and service and all that stuff. When you're suffering, if you're like me with this horrible disease of perception and you're full of yourself and you've just burnt your life to the ground and you feel terrible and you sit there and in the middle of that hopelessness, look at the 12 steps. No one does that and goes, Oh, yeah, that would work. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Nobody does it. It doesn't look like it would work, you know? And it's a funny thing. The actions we take here don't look like they work until after you take them. And then after a while of taking them, we all say the same thing. Oh, my God, I should have done that years ago. <laughs> and I can't take these actions because I don't agree with them. They don't make sense to me. And I, I don't know that What I, I got this ego problem. You could have tried to tell me that. And maybe some of you even tried to tell me that. And it wouldn't have made sense to me because I have no self-esteem. So how could I possibly have an ego problem? I didn't know that they were diametrically opposed to each other. And they really are. The times when I I don't feel very good about myself, those are the times when my ego will rise up and I will be the most judgmental of people. I will be the most critical. I will need the most attention. I will will clamor for the most props, the most crap. And the times that my spirit and my self-esteem is really good, I don't really need too much. And you all look pretty good to me. So I don't think I have an ego problem because I feel so horrid about myself and I loathe myself. But I got an ego problem and I don't know it. I'm the guy, that fits the old adage, you can always tell an alcoholic, you just can't tell them much. (laughs) You know, I'm a giant, I just sit in those meetings and my ego is the most defended mechanism in the world. It will just pick people apart. Because any, especially if you have some recovery and you're saying something that's threatening the control here, oh my god, it'll shoot you down instantly. I remember sitting in meetings, and old timers would come into the places I'm in, and they'd start sharing. And I'd get a little antsy. All of a sudden, I'm going, is that a toupee? (laughs) You know? Right, right. I just have to tear. I got to tear him down, right? right, Or remember sit there thinking, oh my god, what's this guy think he is? He's so full of himself. Oh no, she's a sunbeam for Jesus! For God's sakes! <laughs> I had a great psychiatrist who some of you might have heard this guy's name's Abe Torsky. He's—I think he's probably worked with us in several places around Pittsburgh. Now it must be fifty, close to fifty years. He's in his nineties. Three institutions I ended up at—he lectured there—and he cornered me one time, and because I was—he'd seen me in the other places, and he—and he. <laughs> and he uh, he said "So I'll never forget this, and I didn't get it at the time. I only get it years later looking back. But Abe said to me, he said, the reason guys like you don't get any better and most of you relapse yourself to death is you're so ego-dominant. You can't listen to anybody in order to hear anything new. You can only listen to see how you are already right, and that's me. I just have a non-stop conversation with in my head that overshadows everything in the meeting. And I'm so egocentric, the only person I listen to is me. Which is horrid when you think about it. I would be better off using Charles Manson as a spiritual advisor than my than this. I mean, you know, I mean, look at the track record for God's sakes. I couldn't give it up. I could I want to I'm right. I wanna be right about everything. I don't think my ego cares if it if it kills me, as long as after I'm dead, everybody realizes how wrong they were and Bob was right. <laughs> I'll tell you, tell you a funny little story. I was uh, I ended up in an emergency room one time. I that happened to me occasionally because I, I just I hurt myself or so I get fights sometimes. But this was one of those hurt myself things. I think in a drunken rage, I put my fizzed through a window or something and I was bleeding and they had to stitch me up and, and then they gave me some X, uh, x-rays. And So I've been in this hospital for about two hours. So two hours without a drink so I'm kind of sobering up in there a little bit. And they got me waiting for the results from the x-ray and I'm sitting in this uh, waiting room and they have this rack of medical pamphlets, heart disease, diabetes, etc. And this one got my attention was seven warning signs of cancer. And I And I remember just kind of in my sort of semi-not-quite-so-drunk state, thumbing through this thing. And one of the things it said in there was continued unexplained bleeding. And I remember reading that and thinking, oh, my god. I, I dry heave. Sometimes blood comes out. Matter of fact, oh, my god. Some, I, sometimes I'm bleeding out both ends. I got cancer. And it was like, it was like, oh. And then I had this epiphany, I thought, wait a minute. It's metastas, it's a brain tumor. <laughs> it explained volumes of my life because why, why do I do these weird things? I can't remember doing them. Why do I overreact and I snap on people for nothing? Why do I get so depressed? I almost go into like a like comatose state where I'm so withdrawn from life. Why can't I hold a job? Why can't I, no, why doesn't anybody, nobody really likes me. I have a brain tumor. It was, bro. it was wonderful. And I had this fantasy, I carried it for some time. You know, one of these days they're going to find out, they're going to take me to the cancer ward, they're going to have to notify my mother and father who had thought I was a bum and wouldn't have anything to do with me. And they're going to realize how wrong they were about me. And they're going to come running to the hospital begging my forgiveness. And then all my girlfriends are going to get notified. (laughs) And they will be properly ashamed of themselves. (laughs) I ended up in a treatment center, talking to this doctor, checking my vitals. And I said, doctor, he's he's starting to talk a little bit about alcoholism. I said, doctor, I got a brain tumor. (laughs) And he looks at me, back, looks at me and says, has this been verified? I said, yes, it has. <laughs> it was verified by the smartest guy I know. I mean, <laughs> and he gave me a whole series of tests, whole bunch of stuff. I mean, they, did, they shot dye in me, they did all kinds of stuff. And he comes back to me, he says, you don't have any cancer at all, you have a, an ulcer and a hemorrhoid. <laughs> I was disappointed. That, honest to God, I I almost wanted another opinion. It was like, you know, really, you know? I would rather, my ego would rather have me dead and all you wrong and me right. And and if you identify with that at all, you do not have a high mental health quotient, I'm telling you. I don't know that I'm in the grip of something. Our our book says we're we're in its bondage, this bondage of self. I didn't know that, I... You couldn't have convinced me of it, I guess. And in 1978, I tried to take my own life. I, I'd been uh, relapsing for a number of years. I, I'd been to all kinds of psychiatrists. I'd taken a lot of medications. I've had several diagnoses. I've been diagnosed as clinically depressed. And I, I'll tell you, I've read, I've read the deal. I know why they. It, I looked that. I looked like I was. I've been diagnosed as free-floating anxiety panic disorder given the proper treatment medication for that. And if you look at that, it matched me. But I got something more insidious than that. I don't have a mental illness. It looks like a mental illness. I have a malady of my very being. Our book says it's a spiritual malady. I didn't like that for a long time because it sounded religious to me. And it's not really. It's my very light is sick. The thing that alcohol lit up has now become very, very sick. And the great news about that for guys like me and many, many, many of the guys I sponsor who've been also diagnosed as a lot of different things, there's a great promise that is almost miraculous in its reach. In chapter 5, it says that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. I am here to tell you that that's the absolute truth. I'm a guy that was, should have been told that I should probably be in some kind of mental health care for maybe forever. I got guys I sponsor. I got a guy just, he's coming up on five years and he, he'd been on so much stuff and so into the mental health system for years and he's free now almost five years. And he laughs and he sponsors guys and he's on fire as I am. But I didn't know any of that. So in 1978, I tried to kill myself, and I can't go on anymore. You know, there's a a passage in our book, and it's exactly where I was at, where it says you get to a point. You can't imagine life with it, and you can't imagine life without it. Clancy says something that's, I've never heard it said better. You get to a place where there's no friendly direction, not even in the bottle, because it's turned on you and there's no friendly direction, there's no ease and comfort, there's no nothing anywhere. The book says we get to a place where there's nothing left but to pick up that simple kit of spiritual tools, and that's exactly what happened to me. And I went to this bridge and I to kill myself, and I I couldn't do it because I'm a coward. I've always been a coward. I, I put up a good facade in those cell blocks and in the streets and halfway houses. I act like a tough guy, but the truth is I'm I'm not. I'm always pathetic and I feel and scared a lot. My fear saved my life that day. And it wasn't it wasn't a fear of dying. I'm willing to die. I was afraid as I looked down on those railroad tracks that this might not be high enough. Or maybe with my track record, I'm going to screw this up like I've screwed everything else up in my life, and I won't die. I'll end up paralyzed from the neck down in some charity ward. I'm a young kid in my 20s, I'll probably lay there 50 years, and I can't even get a drink. <laughs> Listening to my head tell me what a worthless piece of crap I am. As members of AA parade their newcomers through the hospital room, and I get them, hear them say, Well, this is what happens to you when you don't work our beautiful twelve steps. I'm paralyzed, I can't even give them the one finger salute. What do you do uh, when there is no relief anywhere? Not in in the bottle and not in medications and not in changing towns and not in money and good jobs, because I had a couple, not in relationships, not in being loved. I had a lot of people love me from time to time. You can't live without it, and you can't live with it, and you can't even kill yourself. What's left except Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> the last house on the block. And, and I don't think a lot of us come here, every once in a while you see, you see a guy skip into AA. You know, he's... <laughs> two weeks later, the meds wear off and it's different. <laughs> I don't think we don't skip it. it. It's most of us trudge into Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like like you're going to the gallows. I mean, it's this guy I knew, Joe. He used to have the he had the best description. And I'm a musician, so I get this. He said when he, he realized he was an A, and he looking around, he said Alcoholics Anonymous. He said I felt like I joined the Salvation Army band. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, you know that feeling like where all of a sudden you're sober a little while, you wake up to where you are. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, it's come to this, has it? Oh. In <laughs> 1978, I woke up to, the, I was in an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought, that's okay. I was in a meeting one time, in early sobriety, and it was a weird meeting because it was one of those meetings where people were talking about how they were almost killed. And everybody had a story, you know, car wrecks and stabbing, just all kinds of stories, drug overdoses. And they all had those, and I had my own. And I, I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, we've all died. We had to come here. This is, this is purgatory. <laughs> a, you got to come to AA and clear up your mess before you can go on. I thought, and, and it wasn't a bad thought. It didn't freak me out. I thought, well, that's cool. I mean, I'm good with that, you know. And who knows? Maybe that's what AA is. I don't know. In 1978, I met a man. He was my sponsor. My first 15 years of sobriety, he was the guy that God sent, that showed me the way out of the hole by his actions. When I was about 15, actually a little before 15 years sober, I started realizing that we, him and I, become so close, and we we are. He, he was like my dad. I'm the executor of his estate. We're like we're like best friends, and it's hard to get objective. Direction and accountability for someone who's like your dad, and so I, I decided. I thought I need somebody that's gonna, that's gonna tell me the truth. I knew I need somebody that I can have accountability to. I need somebody that intimidates me. I need someone that when they say do this, I'm gonna do it. And I got Clancy to sponsor me at that time. You want to know how to become more sponsorable? Don't be sponsorable for a while. I'll tell you, I, I was like a loose cannon in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would go to, to Dick with some great things and he loved me so much he thought everything I did, it's go, cool, that's good, just, 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 you know. There was no accountability and I, I, uh, I, and I wanted it. I was tired of being a loose cannon. I wanted somebody like that in my life. This man, Dick T, who's dying in this hospice, he was a great example of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was the guy in Las Vegas in 1978 that was in the middle of everything. He was the doer he was the doer in aa at that time in las vegas he'd been a past delegate he'd, one of the guys that, that uh, worked on the first he worked on the first convention he was past chairman of the convention he was involved with the, he started the retreat he was involved he started one of the clubs he was started one of the halfway houses he was involved he started many many meetings in las vegas he was in the middle of aa And I couldn't have found a better person to help me because I needed that example. And I met him because he brought a meeting into this detox I'm in twice a week. As I've tried to do now without fail for over 34 and a half years, I've taken two meetings a week into a place like that. He was my example. You know, I asked him something and I didn't know it at the time that I meant it. But I said to him, because I had no self-esteem, I thought I had to sweeten the deal. I said to him, would you sponsor me? And then I said, well, oh, if you do, I'll do anything you ask me to do. And they have stuff to do. I mean, it's not, it's not a rhetorical <laughs> question. I mean, they have like lots of stuff. He wanted me to go on 12-step calls. He, they, this, these were not big book technicians. They were people who believed in cleaning up your mess, and devoting your life to helping others, and trying to develop a relationship with some sort of power. And they hammered me about service and 12-step calls. I remember talk, talking to one day, just, they wanted me to go into the prison. They, they were starting a new meeting, Gene Prison. Want me to sign up for that? I didn't think I had, I don't have any tattoos. I can't do that. Um, they wanted me to take meetings back into the detox. Let me to go to 12-step calls. They had a whole bunch of stuff. I'm saying to this guy, they're they're hammering me with, help others, help others, help. I said to him, well, I understand what you're saying, but don't you think I should work on me for a while? He reared back and he said, work on you? You've done quite enough of that. Stop it. I couldn't argue. I thought, you know, I have done quite enough of that. If I could have fixed myself, I'd have been fixed by now because nobody's ever tried harder. That delusion in the book that we could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world, but if we manage well, you know what? that's a delusion? For God's sakes, what demographic on the planet has ever spent more money, more time, more focus, and more obsessive energy on trying to make themselves happy and satisfied as we have? And the end result is would you sponsor me? You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like complete failure. I mean, when I was new, a guy, a guy named Joe Wright cornered me after a meeting and he said, uh, he said, kid, you need to take step three. Well, I don't believe in God. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm easing up on that position a little bit. I'm, they got me praying, but I don't really believe in God, but I'm doing the motions I said to Joe, I said, I can't take step three. I don't believe in God. Joe said, you don't have to believe in God to take step three. I said, Joe, it's a, step two came to believe. Step three made a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him. I don't have any of that, Joe. He said, you don't have to believe in God to take step three. And I'm looking at him like I think he's nuts. And he said, listen, kid, I promise you, if you'll turn your will and your life over to this chair. And he points to a chair in the Alano Club. He says, I guarantee you an instantaneous miracle. So I thought, what the hell? All right, Joe, I turn my will and my life over to the chair. What's the miracle? And he gets a big smile. He says, well, the miracle would be your life's no longer in the hands of an idiot. (laughs) And I I didn't get my feelings hurt. I just thought, yeah, that'd be right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Because if you'd have followed me around, man, you, you, could you watch me? Maybe as your loved ones and family watched you, could you come to any conclusion other than whoever's making decisions for Bob is out to kill him? <laughs> and yet, here, it all makes sense, doesn't it? The greatest trick the ego ever does is to convince us it doesn't exist. It chatters at you all the time. It never stops. It never goes away. On a good spiritual hair day, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous are right here. The actions of AA are right here. And this becomes like music in the doctor's office. But for that to take control of me again, it's got to scare me. You don't go from a surrendered guy just trying to help others to a guy in the, that's in, on the throne playing God just like that. Your ego will worry you into that position. And the step seven in the 12 by 12, it says self-centered fear is the chief activator of all our defects of character. And my ego will scare me. And if you scare me, I'm capable of lying to you. Now, probably it's going to eat at me and I'm going to have to come back and make it right. But I am very capable. I'm capable of being very selfish. I'm capable of all kinds of things if you scare me enough. So self-centered fear is the enemy, and then comes God. My first sponsor was big on prayer. And I don't believe in God, but he was big on that. You know, He'd say things to me like, do you trust God? No. Can you act like it? I'll try. And trust is like a muscle. The more I acted like someone who trusted in this, the stronger it became. I don't know that I've ever been in a better spot in my AA life than I'm today. My home group is, I just love my home group. It's a, it's a rare window. Now it's probably, by next week, it's probably gonna turn to crap. But I'll tell you, <laughs> right now, right now I can go to my home group and I go to most meetings around Las Vegas and I sit there and I don't have, there's nobody I have a problem with in, there at all. Now there's some people I feel sad for them because they're, they're, they're causing themselves and anybody that's in the splatter zone a lot of problems. <laughs> but, but I get it, I get that that's me. That's me when I'm full of myself and I'm scared. I got new guys. I got six guys less than six months sober. And I've, I have learned from Clancy and a lot of the old timers, if you're going to sponsor new guys, you've got to get them helping others immediately, or else you're going to end. If you, well, I can't imagine what it would be like to sponsor 30 people that don't help anyone. You'd want to kill yourself. I mean, they just, <laughs> once, once they start sponsoring guys, it's like they, they turn into low-maintenance guys. And now these guys call me. They're not even sober. Like, like, Zach's only got four months, and he's calling me with problems about people he sponsors. That's very cool. The other day, I asked him, I said, but how's things going in your life? And it was like he like came out of a daydream. My life. Oh, yeah, my life. <laughs> that's beautiful. I mean, that's really, that's very cool. Because we talk in the the prayer of St. Francis, it talks about self-forgetting. And you guys pushed me into the service, and you pushed me into it, and I discovered that I am the kind of guy, I could pray fervently day in and day out to be relieved of the bondage of self, but if I don't get out there in action and take altruistic acts, and if I don't try to help anybody, my life's still all about me. I've noticed something that's kind of a little bit scary to me, and it's very sad. We're losing a lot of old timers in Alcoholics Anonymous. Guys sober 30, 40 years, 20 years, and we're losing them because they stop doing the deal and they don't know that that's what happened because if you ask them, they will tell, they'll, they'll pull out their Alcoholics Anonymous resume of all the things they've done over the last 20 or 30 years, but they're not doing it anymore. And they don't have, they don't, the spark is died. It's died. I, I was asking, I, not too long ago, I was talking to this guy, and I said, I was asking him to do something in service. We were starting a new meeting in this treatment center if he'd want to come. And you know what he said to me? He said, it was scary. And this guy's sober a long time, and he has done a lot of good things in alcoholics and arms. But he said to me, oh, I've done a lot of that. Let some newer people do it. I said, you've done, you have done a lot of that, but I don't see, I don't think you've done any any of it in a long time. And he had, and his light's getting dim. And he's sort of, he's a sort of, it looks like a depressive, depressed guy, you know? And because he's not doing the things that are necessary to keep the light on. And we lose a lot of, we're losing a lot of these guys. They get, they get depressed, they... There's a million doctors out there. You're having a bad day? Oh, hey, I got something for you. There a million of them. And we're losing them. Some of them are committing suicide. Some of them are drinking again. And some of them at one time had this, but they lost it. When it says in the book, it is easy to, to let up on this spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. it really is. I, you get, the, the fruits of your own recovery are that's seductive stuff. And if you're self-centered and self-obsessed and self-absorbed as I am, you have a tendency to judge how you're doing by how you feel. And one of the things I love about Clancy is he, he doesn't really care how I feel. I mean... <laughs> I mean, he does, I mean, there are times, out of, the, out of kindness, sometimes he'll turn on his uh-huh machine when I'm talking about a relationship or something that I just, just went south on. me. Uh-huh. But man, <laughs> he cares a lot about what I'm doing, what I'm doing in Alcoholics Anonymous and what I'm doing in my home group, and he will judge how I'm doing by what I'm doing, not on how I feel. There have been times in my sobriety where I felt really good, but I was building a house of cards based on self. And if your self will run riot, it's kind of cool is till the wheels come off. (laughs) And you go up to a guy, how you doing, Bob? Oh man, I'm doing great. See my new jag? And then there are other times in my sobriety when I went through my divorce a few years ago. Clancy walked me through that and there were times in that, the truth, honest to God, if you'd asked me how I was doing and I answered you how I, based on how I felt on, on certain particular days, I would have told you I'm not doing I'm just hanging in here. I don't like this. I feel like I'm, I'm, trying, I'm keeping moving because I feel like I'm, i I got a depression cir- circling me out of the failure. But I think if you'd asked, if you'd asked my sponsor how I was doing, he, he probably would have said, you know, he's doing all right. He's calling me. He's making his commitments. He's returning his phone calls. He's sponsoring guys. And that's the guy I try to be with the guys I sponsor. I'm very concerned with what they do. Feelings come and go, but the actions carve the path I will make in my life. It is all that's real in the, in the end result. It's all that's real is what I do. If you're new, I don't know if you've identified with me at all. If you did, God help you. Oh, <laughs> You you really need AA very badly. Oh. And you may not. You, you there, there are people in Alcoholics Anonymous that, that just sort of they don't know what all that, what's all that about? Just don't drink for God's sakes. My God, I wished it would have been that easy for me. If quitting drinking would have solved my problem, you can bet that I'd never paid back all that money. <laughs> you can bet on that, I'll tell you. I'd have never devoted my life to trying to help others. I have a 25-year-old daughter who I just adore. She's not one of us, thank God. And she doesn't understand AA, but she, she's willing to believe that this has something to do with, why, with me being good and happy. And she's funny. She says, she, every week she'll say to me, where are you going, Dad? I'll say, well, going to da- Dallas. Oh, where are you going to stay in Dallas? I don't know. You don't know. No, i just get off the plane. Somebody meeting you? I hope so. <laughs> well, you're dead. you know who's meeting you? I, I don't know. I may, they might have sent me an email. I don't know. And it's like that every weekend. And she thinks that is bizarre. I'll go all over the world, and I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who's meeting me. I don't know what I'm doing. But somehow she notices I always come back, and I'm good. Alcoholics Anonymous has done something for me I never imagined. I, 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 when I first got sober, I, I guess I thought that it looked to me, it looked like A, had good news and bad news. The good news is maybe if I went to thousands of these stupid meetings, I'll stay sober the rest of my life. And the bad news is I'm going to live a long time. And, and I never imagined that what I would find in all the actions put together, and I don't know what you can leave out. I don't think you can leave anything out of the recipe. You put them all together, and somehow you have those moments where you get that feeling about yourself and about your life that is very similar to the way I felt when I first started drinking alcohol. And you get a feeling that sometimes will resonate in you, and as it resonates in me, I want to do this the rest of my life.
1: You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep SoberShares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses and expand the reach of our show.